Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Lehman, CEO of Zartico, a destination operating system that's raised $24.5 million in funding. Sarah, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you. So excited to be here, Brett. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let's go ahead and kick off with a little bit more about who you are and a bit about your background. Well, let's start. I'm a mother of three. I've got a 20-year-old, 18-year-old, and a 16-year-old. I'm a wife of 23 years. I'm a CEO. I'm a board chair outdoor enthusiast, and I'm an avid Packers fan. A lot to unpack there. Yep. yep. (laughs) I'd say my biggest pet peeve are slow walkers, and I love any party that requires a costume. What's the craziest costume that you've worn? Oh, I dressed up as Barbie recently to go to the Barbie movie because my husband said he would only take me if I wore a blonde wig and a pink dress. And well, I won. I went to the movies. <laughs> That's awesome. And you mentioned outdoor enthusiasts there. What are some of those outdoor activities that you like to do? Oh, I do it all. I love to trail run and mountain bike, road ride, hike, anything that involves the outdoors. I recently got into ultra running in the last few years, and I, I'm very jealous that you live in Utah. I'm guessing there's some amazing trails to go run out there. Yeah, literally right in my backyard. That's my zen. That's where I go to think. It's where I go to... I call it active meditation, reconnect, and just that's the place where I find most of my solutions or at least insights as I'm running along the trails. That's so awesome. Do you do ultra runs or ultra distances? No, I do the most efficient thing possible, which is the shortest, fastest running I can do in the small time frame that I have, given that I'm still <laughs> running a day-to-day company. But I would one day like to do an ultra marathon, but that's going to have to be in the future. Yeah, I'm getting ready to have my first child. And I was looking at my Strava the other day and it said I had run 175 hours this year. And I was thinking there's no chance that's going to be able to continue when I have kids. I think they're just not going to have the time to run 175 hours in a year. So I feel like that's going to shift at some point. Yeah, you make some choices for sure. (laughs) Makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to your inspirations, is there a specific founder that's really inspired you along in the journey? Well, I actually have the benefit of having two founders that have really influenced me. The first is a woman named Cynthia Fisher, and she founded a company called Viacord. And Viacord is a biomedical services company that banks umbilical cord blood to be used as an alternative to bone marrow in transportation. And I was a sophomore at Boston University, and she was starting her company, and she was looking to hire some administrative help. And I came on as the second employee hired as her administrative assistant, literally got to sit on her couch while she brainstormed the name of the company, while she founded it, helped create business cards. And I continued to work for her through college and then after college stayed working with her. And she is a remarkable entrepreneur. She also introduced me to the concept of going to business school. She was a grad of Harvard Business School, and so she married her passion of medicine and the altruistic mission around 
medicine and what technology can do with her, you know, business acumen. And she exposed me to that whole world and ultimately is the reason and inspiration why I went went to um, business school. So she's been a huge influence in my life. She was also this huge, big thinker, but really stayed focused on the details and taught me that the details matter, right? The details matter, a period a comma, the way you talk in your communications. She was an extraordinary writer. And I just got to soak up all of her goodness while I worked for her for those couple of years. And then my second founder is my husband. I met him also while we were at business school and out of college, he decided to start his own business and he loved chocolate. So he researched a hot chocolate recipe and came up with this proprietary hot chocolate company called Steamer and really went door to door to the best candy stores, chocolate shops in the city of Manhattan. And ultimately, his product was featured on Good Morning America by Julia Child drinking his hot chocolate. And he's a brand builder. And what I love about being exposed to how he thinks is he helps create products and brands that people want to be a part of. And I think that's really helpful. Even today, as I sell a B2B product, people want to do business with products that they believe in and that they love. And I don't think that's strictly just for B2C products. And so I've benefited from his wisdom throughout these years. That's something I preach a lot with the B2B companies that I work with is if you want to get inspiration, look at what these D2C brands are doing or these consumer brands are doing. That's the future, like the type of engagement and authenticity they have. We need to bring that to this kind of boring, stale world of enterprise software. And I feel like that's starting to catch on now a little bit more. I couldn't agree with you more. When I was just getting started with Zartico, I you know, obviously did a lot of research. I'm not from the tech industry. I've never sold a B2B product before. So I thought, okay, let me get myself educated on the big movers and shakers. And I have to say, I'm like, wow, where is the soul? Where is the soul? People still want to do business with companies that they believe in. And so with Zartico, I feel we've done an extraordinary job. And I attribute this completely to the team. I think we've created a brand and a culture that our partners want to be part of. Now, granted, we, we sell into smaller niche markets that are ripe for digital disruption. So having a community that our user base and our partners can be part of is also really key for them. But I do agree that B2C, they're a treasure trove of how to think about branding and how to think about community. One other question I wanna ask about, so you have two founders in the family. How do you approach raising kids? Like, do you encourage them to be entrepreneurs? Do you try to steer them away from it and say, no, that's a, a very you know, stressful life. Do anything else besides entrepreneurship. What's your approach there? Well, we encourage our kids to pursue what they are passionate about. But we always teach our kids right now that they're CEO of their own life, right? They are the entrepreneurs of their own life. And so have that sort of scrappy mindset of if you want to pursue something, you've got, it's up to you to go after it. And String along the pennies until you get that big break, talk to a million people, network the way entrepreneurs do. So I think our kids, regardless of where they net out, are instilled with a true entrepreneurial spirit around how they think about their careers and hopefully their lives. And by golly, they have seen struggle, right? My husband and I have owned, co-owned, still own multiple businesses, some of them that were just literally at the brink of bankruptcy during, you know, 2010. 
where if the business went, so did everything else. And our kids saw us working hard together side by side, you know, slaying dragons to some of the more fortuitous times when we've actually had a liquidity event with uh, the sale of one of our businesses. So I think they've definitely been exposed to the highs are highs and the lows are low as an entrepreneur and a founder. So you've got to figure out how to maintain some level of stability and calmness throughout all those ups and downs. That makes a lot of sense. And that, that's good to have exposure to both sides because that is the reality of the entrepreneurial journey is it's painful sometimes and it's awesome other times, but definitely has the highs and lows there. Yes. What about books? The way we like to frame this, we got this from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quake books. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind? Yeah, well, there's two books I read every year, and then I refer back to them multiple times, and I recommend them to everyone. And obviously, one is The One Thing, because by doing that one thing, it makes everything else either unnecessary or simpler. And I, I just love that concept of getting really crystal clear around what is that one thing, and that shifts over time. And I think the reminder of, okay, today, that one thing might be completely to invest in loving my husband or my spouse because they need some TLC in order to ensure that, you know, they can man the the things that are happening at home so I can stay focused on, you know, my business. In other instances, that one thing could be around winning this one deal because this is the domino that gets, you know, the traction that you need in your business. So I love, love, love that book. And then the other book I read every year is Essentialism. And of course, I listen to Greg's podcast because I do believe if the answer is not hell yeah, it should be no. And I try to, as someone who wants to say yes to everything, I keep reminding myself that that has to be the mantra. You have to be able to say no. And, you know, for those that don't mind a little bit of swearing internally, we talk about how do you get crystal fucking clear of what you're trying to accomplish and edit out anything that doesn't fit into that CFC. I feel like you hacked my bookshelf or hacked my Kindle. Those are uh, two of my favorite books. <laughs> but I talked to a lot of founders and they also, uh, especially Greg's book, they uh, they talk about that and his other book, Effortless. I've been hearing that one more and more. So it seems like we're definitely aligned there on, on favorite books. Yes, Effortless is on my list as well. Nice. Let's switch gears now and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. And how we like to start this part of the interview is really focusing on the problem. So what problem do you solve? So... Did you know, let me ask you a question. Did you know that the visitor economy represents 10% of the global GDP? I did not. And did you know that one in eight employees around the world are employed in the travel and hospitality industry? I did not know that, but that one makes sense to me. The first one seems crazy. Right? Crazy. 10% of the global GDP is dedicated to the visitor economy, and yet the stewards that manage these destinations literally are doing it with once annual surveys and spreadsheets. And so the problem that we are trying to solve is to help our beloved places and the stewards that manage those places to have the best technology and understanding in order to ensure that not only the visitors have a nice experience, but the residents have quality of life and benefit from this massive economic engine. And so what we bring to the table are high-frequency, big data sets that help our destination stewards understand trends related to movement and spend and hotel occupancy, short-term occupancy. 
related to their destination to make better decisions. So right now, the customers that we work with are government tourism bodies. So every state, city, county typically has a convention bureau or tourism bureau. And then we have just launched our airport products. So now we work with airports. So destination marketing organizations or destination management organizations, as well as airports are two customer bases. What's it like selling to both of those groups? And, and the reason I ask is we've never had anyone on the podcast that sold to anyone like that. Most of the time it's enterprise software. They're selling to you know the security leader or the marketing leader. So these are two very different groups that our audience probably knows zero about. So what is it like selling to them? Okay, so I am blown away at the passion and the commitment of the leaders of destination marketing management organizations. I am just blown away at how much commitment they have to ensuring the visitor economy is thriving, as well as to ensuring that their residents have a wonderful quality of life. And quite honestly, tourism in many instances is an underappreciated economic engine of our world. And every day, these folks stand up and defend their investment in their budgets, as well as the massive amounts of stakeholders that they have to manage from the state legislators all the way down to their local commissioners and business owners. And they do it with the most commitment and passion I have ever seen. I never expected it out of the gov tech industry, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, okay, you know, nine to five. Oh, gosh, no, not at all the case. And I think it's because they're defending the public good, right? Which is our, you know, most amazing and relished destinations that we all covet and love. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Can you maybe provide a bit of context about how these associations and organizations operate and, and how they're founded. So for example, on the website, I see right there in the middle, the Alaska Travel Industry Association. Is that like a quasi-government association? Is it privately owned and it's contracted by the government? Like, how does this all work? The majority of our partners are, in fact, government entities. So the state office of the tourism, sometimes it's run as a separate you know, office of the governor. Sometimes it's under economic development. So they are most often government entities. And the same goes for airports, right? Most of our current customers and target customers right now are run and managed by the government. Were VCs initially excited about this idea? Because when I think about government, I think very long sales cycles. And I think that there's budgets that probably aren't very big. But again, I'm not from this space, so I could, could be completely wrong there. But what was that like you know, in those early conversations with VCs when you were saying, hey, this is the market that we want to go after and serve? Uh, painful. <laughs> so my advice to anyone is, you know, resilience and persistence pays. So a couple of things. First and foremost, some VCs and investors absolutely understand the GovTech space. And so it just took us a little while to find those folks. The others that it was new to, we had to ensure, you know, speaking a little bit around our pitch, we had to ensure that the pitch was really clear about the problem we were going to solve and how we were going to solve it. But then more importantly, how the team that we had amassed was actually the perfect team to solve it. 
So while you think that, you know, GovTech, while that must be a 12-month process, we amassed a sales organization that had relationships in this industry. And so our average turn of a deal is between three to six months, which, you know, once we shared that, it was like, oh, okay, this is a different type of experience, even when it was an enterprise sale, which because we have enterprise all the way down to basic level packages. Are you seeing this change now with GovTech and investors? Are investors more open to backing these types of companies? Yes, because I think what we are highlighting as a category leader is that GovTech deserves the right tools. There's so much opportunity for digital transformation within this sector. And I think it went straight to the forefront during COVID, right? Because we could not hide behind the fact that we were delayed or we were slow to the punch. COVID really accelerated that, even for our own company, right? We launched under the premise of bring us all your data and we'll put it nicely into a business intelligence tool to realizing during COVID, what entities really needed was situational awareness. And they needed to know what was happening now, not what was ha- what happened this past year from a reporting standpoint. So that really accelerated our own transformation to deliver more timely and necessary tools to our customer base. But I think the whole industry was awakened to the possibility of replicating or at least looking to what was happening in the private sector and trying to bring those technologies. So we've seen a lot more influx of technological advancements in the GovTech space just in the last four years that we've been involved. I want to ask a bit as well about timing here. So I know the company was founded in, it looks like mid-2019, and then you took over as CEO very, very early on in the journey, which looks like January 2020. So are those accurate dates? Did you start January 2020? Because that's a pretty interesting time to start at a travel tech company. Oh, you better believe it. My timing was impeccable. (laughs) January 2020 came on board with my two co-founders, Darren Dunn and Jay Kinghorn. We came together, we met, we agreed that this was a nice combination of skill sets. I really wanted to be an owner, operator, and CEO. So we put a little money in and then literally launched our MVP. This is a fun story. Launched our MVP March of 2020. (laughs) And so the world shuts down. And mind you, this is a travel tech B2B company that sold primarily at trade shows. So April comes along and I we get on a Zoom call and I ask my team, hey, guys, you know, we've got some money in the bank, but we need some customers. So how do you guys think we're going to get some customers if the trade shows don't come back? Oh, Sarah, the trade shows will come back. This is an out event. With it, this is the travel industry. Of course, we're going to have trade shows. You know, a couple of weeks later, we get on a Zoom call. Hey, guys, you know, August is when we're going to run out of cash. What do you think we're going to do here about getting some customers. <laughs> so a couple of weeks later, get on the phone and they're like, okay, we got an idea. I was like, okay, tell me what your idea is because we definitely need some customers. Okay, we're going to rent an RV and we're going to drive it cross country and we're going to bring the trade show to the people. So while everybody in the world was home lifestyling your groceries, because that was what we were doing the summer of 2020, My sales team got together with a couple of folks, rented an RV, literally drove it to the parking lots of our customers, set up a small little trade show booth with a makeshift, you know, demo and some plants, 
socially distanced. And that's how we pitched our company and signed up our first, you know, several dozen customers in the summer of 2020. What did you do to get the team and yourself through that period? Because I'm sure that was a very stressful time. Oh, my goodness. It was an amazingly stressful time. And I remember being curled up under my desk, which, oh, by the way, was the laundry room because my children were home and I had to give out my office to my kids. So I was relegated to the laundry room, curled up under my desk and thought, what the heck are we doing here? How are we going to get through this? And mind you, my prior CEO role, I was this walk around CEO. I ran a manufacturing facility that was open from four to midnight and sometimes four to 4 a.m. So literally I walked around, I talked to everybody every day, I built office culture, you know, had lunch with people. And now suddenly I'm running a startup during COVID and we're a work from anywhere organization. And oh, by the way, we started to grow. So we had to hire people and we couldn't have them fly in for an interview, let alone relocate. So what did we do? I think we we grasped and looked for any examples of how to create culture and community remotely. And we did everything. We had, you know, costume parties via Zoom. We have an amazing Slack community. We have still a weekly all hands call that the entire company comes on. And we introduced something called This Is Me. This is my favorite cultural aspect of Zartico is we, every couple of weeks, someone from my company just gives a brief 15 minute overview of what's important to them, what's important to them in their life, their family, how they got to Zartico. And it's one of the most astonishing connection points that we've created virtually among our people. And then thankfully, two years later, we were able to bring everybody together for the first time. And we were, you know, over 30 people by then. And we hadn't ever seen each other in person. So we've done something well because we're now close to 100 employees. I remember how weird it was to finally meet people in person after you'd been working remote for so long. It was so strange to have those first in-person interactions. Yeah, it was remarkable. And so now every year, because we are a work from anywhere organization, we bring our team together every January for something called Base Camp and everyone flies into Salt Lake City. So we're actively planning that right now. Nice. That's so awesome. Something else you mentioned there that I want to dive into is category. So one of my favorite words is the category a destination operating system. Well, our destination operating system is really our tool and it is for the visitor economy category. You might also describe it as the place-based category in that, you know, we all, we define the world through the lens of a place, whether that your favorite place is a trailhead, your favorite place might be the sports arena down the street, or your favorite place might be that destination that you go to every year with your family. And so our destination operating system is a tool by which the stewards can help manage and better manage those places. Now, a dumb question for you. What's the difference between tourism and the visitor economy? Well, that's a good question. I don't even know if I know the answer to that. I think tourism, in my mind, is the act of going to another place, whereas the visitor economy is the value of that marketplace, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I have to process it for a second, but I, I think it makes sense. Yeah. Now, what about growth? Are there any numbers that you can share that just highlight the traction you're seeing? Yeah. So we have really benefited from extreme growth growing, you know, more than doubling each year, given the fact that we were bringing a product to market that our customers had never seen before. So we're really thrilled to see this 
you know, more than doubling every year up until this year. And we have intentionally slowed down this year so that we can right-size some of our processes. Because as you can imagine, as a startup, you grow quite fast. Your processes, your people and systems don't necessarily keep up with you. So we decided this year we were going to like, okay, let's slow it down a little bit so that we can ensure that our foundation is strong and we fully expect to accelerate into 2024 now that we have simplified like our implementation process. The biggest Achilles heel, I think, for most startups is getting that implementation process right. And so we had an implementation process maybe two years ago that might have taken 120 days. I mean, that's that's horrific. And now we're, you know, we have some customers that go live within 24 hours and our biggest enterprise customers are between 30 and 45 days. So we feel like we've done a lot of right-sizing in terms of our processes. Can you talk me through making that decision to slow down growth? Was that a, a difficult decision to make? Yes. And yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> because, you know, when the customers are there waiting and the opportunity is right ahead of you to intentionally say, you know what, we're going to edit down our ambition to ensure that we have the infrastructure in place, our tech stack is right, and the experience is what we expect. Yeah, that's hard to do, but it's also the right thing to do. We are building a company that is going to be, and we believe, a sustainable, everlasting legacy. And we're dependent on word of mouth as our primary marketing tool. And so we need to ensure that our customers are happy and delighted And so it was the right move for us, but certainly, you know, turning down opportunities as an entrepreneur, I mean, come on, that's like one of the hardest things ever. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Now, as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 24.5 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Oh my goodness. So I'm new to fundraising. This is the first time where we've gone out, and at least in my career as a CEO, gone out to uh, find external investors. I have learned that, well, First and foremost, I believe your cap table is your soul. And so I knew right away that I wanted to ensure that anyone we brought in as an investor was aligned with who we are and where we wanted to go. And so I have probably met with 150 to 200 investors over the course of my, you know, almost four years of being involved. Our earliest seed investors were, you know, business friends and family. You know, they knew me from my former role as a CEO. They knew my track record. And so I felt really good about bringing them into the fold. And then when we went out for our Series A, I just interviewed everybody because I wanted to ensure that their, you know, timeframe was aligned with our timeframe, that they thought about the business the same way we thought about it. You know, there's lots of investors out there with different paradigms. And so a word of wisdom is, stay resolute and finding the right partner to ensure that they are aligned with where you want to go. Let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? I would tell myself to trust my intuition more. And what I mean by that is I should probably step back and give you a little background on how I got here. So prior to Zartico, I ran I was a CEO for a company called NV Composites. We manufactured carbon fiber bicycle wheels, components, and now frames. When I joined that company, it was on the brink of bankruptcy, and I was brought in to turn it around, of which I did, fell in love with that company, stayed on, grew the company, ultimately sold it to one of the 
most world-renowned sporting goods organizations, stayed on for another couple of years to integrate it into that organization, and then finally stepped back after eight and a half years. I took a slight sabbatical because I promised my family I would take a break. I traveled extensively for that last role. And through that process, did a lot of soul searching around what I was looking for in my next you know, gig. I realized then I, I wanted to prove I had kids that were you know, teens. I wanted them to see mom do hard things and see mom tackle something that was totally new. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go into tech and I want to go into tech and I want to use other people's investment to help grow a company the way I think that we could grow it if we had the right investors at the table. That being said, I you know joined the industry that I joined, which I've fallen in love with immediately, but I didn't know it right out of the gate. And so I was a little deferential in moments that I had strong intuition around like, oh, maybe we should think about this differently related to the tech stack, or maybe we should think about this differently related to how we speak to our customers. And what I would tell myself if I were to go back to the beginning is, you know, lean into trusting my intuition faster versus waiting to have so many years of experience to say, oh yeah, okay, I've been around the block a little bit more. Let's trust that intuition. But I just think that's fundamentally a hard thing to do as a leader is to know when it's intuition and when it's just like a hunch that you need to go validate. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? Well, the big picture vision is that to be the destination operating system, we have to actually work multi-vertical. And what I mean by that is we work now with destination marketing organizations. We work tomorrow with airports. You can imagine a world where we work with these small businesses that also benefit from the visitor economy. You can imagine a world where we work with the sporting events and stadiums within that destination. So you're standing at the 10,000 foot level as a destination operating system, ensuring that the whole destination is operating at its fullest capacity, but also with the mindset of that quality of life for our residents. And so multi-vertical expansion is obviously key to that and ensuring that we're building this network ecosystem such that the data from each of those you know, stakeholders feeds into a better understanding of how to manage that destination. So that's the big lofty vision that we have for ourselves. And by golly, I have confidence that we're going to do it. Amazing. I love the vision and I've really loved this conversation. We're up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in that want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Oh, well, please come to Zartico.com. Also, we you can follow us on LinkedIn. And we have a user group and a community that you can find us on LinkedIn. Awesome. Sarah, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 